Good morning. <laughs> Special welcome to those listening on KFUO AM 850 here in the St. Louis region and worldwide on KFUO.org. And a very special uh, good morning to those who are in attendance today. The first time in a long time we've been able to have an in-person Bible study. So uh, obviously things do look just a little bit different with the, the distancing and the mask. And the main thing I'm going to probably say a couple times is that at the end of the Bible study, I would ask that you remember where you sat um, go grab a disinfecting wipe from our big box of disinfecting wipes in the back there on the usher stand and just go ahead and wipe down your seat um, before uh, you leave so that when people come in for Living Stone, just as we do in the sanctuary between services, we have disinfected wherever anyone has been sitting. Uh, my name is Tanner Wade, now pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. The first time I get to say that uh, in an in-person Bible study. So that's a pretty fantastic uh, moment is our usual practice, um, or I guess as used to be our usual practice, but still is, still will be, uh, we will look at the lessons for the upcoming week. So that is uh, proper 23 in Series A from the uh, three-year lectionary system. But uh, before we begin, let's get started with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today thankful for the many opportunities you give us thankful for the opportunities in our daily lives uh, to live out uh, our Christian vocations that you've given us, thankful for the opportunity that we have today to once again uh, meet in person in our gymnasium. We pray that you would continue to guide and bless all those dealing with uh, this pandemic, uh, the medical community, the leaders who are affected, and of course the people of our country and of the world. We pray that your healing hand and your peace would be upon us, Lord, and that we would continue to serve you and your holy will in all that we do. And it's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. So uh, if you didn't grab one, there are sheets on the gym bleachers, um, just little guides for you. Or if you have your Bible with you or your phone, uh, you can follow along as well. But I'm going to uh, start a little differently today. So the first one on your sheet is the Old Testament lesson, but I'm actually going to have you flip it over because the first lesson I want to talk about is our epistle lesson from Philippians 4. And I wanted to make sure we covered that first because I think there's at least, there's probably more than this, but there's at least three really uh, important kind of uh, powerful reminders that these uh, 10 verses have for us. So I'll go ahead and read the verse. And I'm going to start, uh, you don't have this on your sheet, but I'm going to start at Philippians 4 verse 1 just so we have a little bit of context going into Philippians 4 verse 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euidia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So this is a section that begins in the preceding context with a little bit of a, uh, a foreword to the encouragement that Paul's going to give uh, at the end of his letter to the church in Philippi. And so then we get to where our lectionary reading begins in Philippians 4, verse 4, where we read Paul say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Uh, that's the first, I think, important reminder Paul has for us today, because 2020, uh, there's a lot of words that could be used to describe what this year has been, and yet 
uh, Paul would remind us that even today, even in the midst of a lot of different things going on in the world, a pandemic, a crazy election cycle, all kinds of uncertainty, uh, in the midst of those moments, rejoice. Because he calls us to rejoice in the Lord always. And you may notice one of the things he does is add emphasis. Uh, in Greek, you would add emphasis by repeating what you said. So a lot of times uh, a verse might start when Jesus is speaking, like, truly, truly, I say to you. It, it's a doubling. It's, it's an uh, emphatic effect. And again, uh, here we have a repetition occurring where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Um, and to me, it's somewhat the irony because in my own mind, I, when I think of this year, that we think of everything that's changed, everything that's different. Even sitting here in Bible class, distance with mask on, looks different than where we were now six months ago or seven months ago. And yet rejoice, to be joyful in moments such as these. It's a reminder where and to whom and to what extent and to why we do rejoice, because it's in the Lord. And this will tie into uh, verse 13 at the end of this uh, pericope, this selected reading. But Paul's focus here is rejoice in the Lord. Not necessarily rejoice because everything's how you want it. And not rejoice because uh, there are no problems in your life now. No. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice because of the Lord. And we continue into verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, and it's interesting there that reasonableness in the Greek, it's a literally uh, to not follow something to the strict letter of the law. Uh, and if you think about, um, or it might even be translated gentleness in a sense, that there's grace, that there's forgiveness or even a little bit of wiggle room in how we treat one another. And if you think of uh, what we've experienced as a society and what that's led to, the lack of reasonableness, the lack of gentleness, the lack of kindness or grace being extended to someone, uh, especially when they maybe uh, voice an opinion you or you, know, you don't agree with or you don't feel is the, the correct way to go forward, whether it's in a pandemic or an election or with school or with sports, whatever it is, um, we struggle with this. We struggle to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. In fact, you could even say sometimes we sinfully are perhaps a great example of the exact opposite. That we can sometimes be caught and tempted uh, to not only not be gentle, but to be exceedingly harsh. And so uh, Paul is reminding the church in Philippi, but also it's a pretty... Uh, poignant and relevant reminder to us today that as Christians, our reasonableness, our gentleness and how we conduct ourselves with others, meaning how we uh, treat them when they do things to us, that grace we show to them, that forgiveness, that kindness, that should be known to everyone. It's a little bit reminiscent of Romans uh, chapter 12, uh, what I preached on a few weeks ago, where Paul says, you know, uh, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if your enemy thirst, give him something to drink. That's so often that it goes against our own human notion uh, of what we should do. 
And then we continue uh, into verse 6. And again, this, these 10 verses are just packed, these first three especially, with such uh, great reminders for us. We read in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How good have we been at uh, following those instructions in the last six months? Not being anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Bring your request to God or let your request be made known to God. Again, uh, this certainly convicts me because there have been a lot of things I have been anxious about in the last six months. There's a lot of things I'm sure we've been anxious about even in the last uh, week. And there have been certainly times we bring those anxieties to God as we should, but there's also that reminder with thanksgiving. That certainly convicts me sometimes because I, I don't have a problem bringing my request, my supplications to God, but it's not always with thanksgiving, right? Sometimes it's with lament. And not that we can't grieve or not that we can't be frustrated because things are different now than they were a few months ago. But Paul, remember, said, in anything, in any situation, do not be anxious, but with thanksgiving, bring your request to God. Uh, I confess I have not uh, said a whole lot of times, God, thank you for this pandemic, right? And again, Paul's not necessarily saying you need to be that direct, but rather, what is your disposition? What is your attitude towards what you experience in life? That God gives you, uh, to use kind of an Old Testament phrase, uh, your lot in life, right? What is our disposition when things don't go how we want them? Do we say, God, thank you for allowing this opportunity to work through me, however it looks. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know you are at work. We're to be honest, we probably fail at keeping that sort of attitude and that sort of disposition uh, as we go about our daily lives. Uh, and when I read those two verses, not only is it probably familiar because it's a, I mean, a beloved verse, and rightfully so, or a beloved two verses, and is uh, the closing of at least most sermons here at St. Paul's, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guide you. But it also reminded me of what uh, Jesus tells to us in Matthew 6. And I'm going to read for you here. It's Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Those words of Jesus are been applicable not only since he said, in the, said them, but since the fall of man, since Adam and Eve first ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man has had one thing in particular almost constantly, worry. And so sometimes I, I wonder, especially in, in today's situation where we are all seemingly worried, if this doesn't provide a little bit of perspective, that this um, you know, Jesus did not write this in the context of a pandemic. No, he just wrote this in the context of life. That this is what everyone does experience. That everyone gets anxious about what will come next. What's going to happen tomorrow? I love uh, verse 27 of Matthew 6. And which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. We sure would like to think we could. Yet Jesus reminds us, and Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, uh, you can't. That's the straightforward, simple answer. That no one can add a single hour onto his life by being anxious. And I think it's under that perspective, under the perspective of who God is and what he has done for us, that verse 7 of Philippians 4 really begins to take root in our lives. That the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that it uses surpasses all understanding because, again, we'd prefer if it was the peace of God will make total sense to you or the peace of God will be clearly evident to you or the peace of God will make your worries simply go away in material fashions. No, Paul tells us that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, the peace of God which quite frankly sometimes doesn't make sense, the peace of God which comes to us not uh, by our good works but only by God's grace, his mercy and his sacrifice for us on the cross and his son Jesus Christ, that peace surpasses all understanding so that in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of you know economic uncertainty in the midst of a crazy election cycle right a lot of things don't seem to make sense that's okay because the peace of god surpasses all understanding and that's just the first four verses of this <laughs> pericope. So that's why I said I wanted to make sure I covered it first because, boy, what a great reminder. These, uh, these words are for us um, and are for everyone uh, because we're all in this, uh, we have all been experiencing the same thing together, right? And, and I think sometimes uh, we, we can forget the true comfort that comes by simply going to God's word, being reminded that God doesn't say everything's going to be fine and dandy. No, he says his peace will surpass all understanding. 
And we continue into verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is uh, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and have heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If there is anything worthy to think about, think of the words I shared with you, Paul said, says. Think about the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And Paul doesn't just say this as someone who uh, can stand on a mountaintop and overlook a situation and doesn't know what it's really like to be in the midst of uncertainty. And that's really what the last bit of this uh, reading talks about is Paul's own experience. In verse 10 we read, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have uh, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am content. I want to pause there before we get to those last two verses because uh, one important contextual reminder with Philippians is we're not sure of the exact date, but it's pretty evident, evident by the way Paul speaks in this letter. This is a time of imprisonment for him. And it is also a time for him to be thankful. This is, in some ways, a very long thank you note to the church uh, in Philippi. Uh, thank you for the support that he's received. And so that kind of talks to you, or explains, I should say, uh, why the church would be concerned for Paul. And then Paul reminds him, not that I'm in need, but I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, so often in that section there, we just take that last verse. We put on bumper stickers or even put it on eye black if you're an athlete or, or put it on our refrigerator. And that's okay. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we ought to remember what is Paul talking about here? Paul's talking about that in any situation, in both times of plenty and in times of hunger, and in times of abundance, in times of need. That he knows what it's like to be brought low. And uh, in the Greek, that's literally like the low point on a topographical hill, a low point of valley. You know, we, we still use idioms like that, that peaks and valleys, right? We're, we're in a rut or something of that uh, nature. And so he knows what it's like to be in one of those valleys that life sometimes has for us. And Perhaps some of us feel like right now is maybe even one of those valleys because things are a little bit more chaotic than probably we'd prefer. But he also knows how to abound. He also knows what it's like when things are going well. And those two points are, are critical because so often we can come to God in our time of need and then when our need goes away, we forget that what God has provided us. And so Paul's uh, reminder here is that uh, in both the good and the bad, in both those times of valley and when you're at that pinnacle, at that peak, and you're feeling great, know where to turn. 
Know to whom to give the credit, whom to seek for your uh, strength. And he, learned, he says that's the secret of facing plenty and hunger, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him. That is the focus. That I can do all things through God. I can do all things through Christ Jesus my Lord. I can endure it all. Even the good times and even the bad times. And the times in between. I can endure it all because my strength is not in what I materially possess. My strength is not even in my own good health. My strength is not uh, in how well... um, my stock portfolio or how well my baseball team is playing, right? I know I had to bring that up for all the Cardinals fans here. I'm sorry. <laughs> my team didn't make the playoffs, so you can give me a bad time about that later. But our strength, our strength is not in any of those things. Our strength, our endurance, our perseverance is in God and in his son Christ Jesus and him crucified. So it's really, I mean... Talk about 10 verses that packs a lot uh, into it. That's why, like I said, I wanted to make sure we covered it first because, boy, uh, Paul has a lot of great reminders for us, but they're the same reminders that that church in Philippi needed to hear. Uh, I'm, as I usually am, I'm reminded of the book of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. That what we're experiencing now, though it may feel, and even the news will portray it as one of the, you know, perhaps the worst time or the dark days of American history or however you want to put it, this is not new. And when times are good again, that too will not be new. That societies throughout history have gone through this, and yet we're reminded it's not about how well things are going economically, politically, medically even at this moment. It is about God, that he is our peace that he is our joy, and that he is our strength. And those three words, I think, are words we've sometimes forgotten when we think of what it means to be a Christian in the midst. Uh, and my, I'll lump myself in that, right? My, I'm not immune to this at all. But in the midst of everything we've been going through, we've, we've, forgotten, we've forgotten that those three words are a central aspect of what it means to be a Christian, that you have joy, that you have peace, and that you have strength in God and Christ Jesus and him crucified. So at this point, um, I will open it up to any questions on these uh, 10 verses. Uh, No? All right. Going once? Going twice? All right. Well, we'll move on then. And we're going to go to another... uh, well-known verse, probably even more well-known than those verses from Philippians, uh, the psalm of the day. And the psalm of the day, I probably could just start it, and you, most of you may even be able to finish it, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23. And the reason I love that this psalm is included with the epistle lesson especially is it again focuses on what it means to have this relationship with God. So we begin uh, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if I were to ask you, where is the place that you've most often heard this uh, verse, or this psalm, I should say, read? What would you? Yeah, funerals, right? And it is an excellent funeral text because of the hope and the comfort um, and the reminder that it provides in the midst of grief. Because, see, the central question becomes in this psalm, what's it mean that the sheep has the shepherd? Or maybe even more uh, drastically, who is the shepherd to the sheep? What does that mean that the sheep has a shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's a shepherd's job? One of the primary things is making sure the sheep have food. They don't stay in the same spot, right? They have to graze. If you kept them in the same area for too long, all the food would go away, and not only would they get hungry, but they'd eventually die. One of the primary roles a shepherd had is ensuring uh, the well-being, the nutrition uh, of his sheep, making sure they were able to find food. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, I want to make something Kind of clear, and I think most of us understand this. When, when we read, he makes me lie down in green pastures, that doesn't mean there's not going to be times of struggle. I've, had, I've heard and, and have sometimes even seen at, at funerals this taken to mean uh, green pastures means that you don't have to worry about anything. And in one sense, as Paul reminded us, that is true, we do have peace. But that does not mean that the material things of your life are going to turn out fantastically all the time or even fantastically most of the time. Rather, food will be provided. Uh, You will not have a state of deprivation in the sense of not only your spiritual, but also your physical needs. That God provides us our daily bread. Funny, I always think of that when God provides us our daily bread. Uh, We go over in confirmation, you know, what are examples of daily bread? Well, it's not just bread, but it's also vegetables and meat. And then even beyond that, in today's world, a cell phone, perhaps, and even um, things like uh, computers for Zoom so that we can learn when, uh, when schools have to go remote. Um, but my favorite all-time response is I asked this question on a test, what are the different types of daily bread God's given you? And I received back uh, French toast, wheat bread, and bagels. I said, well, factually correct. <laughs> He leads me beside still waters. Now, not only is water important, but what's it mean that you have still waters? Well, one, it means that there's safety and security, that you're not in um, a, a rushing creek, you're not in a flash flood, that there's not a danger in going out and uh, drinking from these waters, that there's not enemies, there's not predators nearby for the sheep, things that would stir up the water. 
that God provides our protection, our safety. As Luther puts uh, in his large catechism, if, if God uh, stopped delivering us from evil, we could not withstand the devil for not one single hour. Verse 3, he restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. To the glory of his holy name, he leads me on a path of righteousness. Now, if you think about how important it is to have the correct path for a sheep, one of the uh, issues with being a shepherd in the Middle East is that the terrain is very rocky. I'm sure they would love to see the Missouri Valley with all its greenery and, and flat rolling hills, right? But you've got to know what the right path is to take because at certain points, one false step and you go tumbling down the side of a hill. So he leads us in the correct paths, the paths of righteousness, for his name's sake. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, what does the rod and the staff of a shepherd do? One, it's a protective instrument. It, it beats away, if need be, uh, any predators that would come. But especially when we think about being led in paths of righteousness, how else might a shepherd's rod or a staff be used? Well, one, think of a rod, it's got a nice, long, probably wooden stick. Sheep starts going offline, you kind of tap it back onto the right path. And then you think of a shepherd's staff, and it's got that big crook in the neck, uh, what's that for? Well, it's not just so he has a handle, but yes, exactly. So if he needs to, he can get around the sheep's neck and pull him onto the right path. Now, does that always probably feel the best for the sheep? No. Are there times we've been convicted in our own sin, reminded uh, that we are truly uh, chief of sinners, though we be? Yeah. And is that painful? Absolutely. Yet for whose benefit is the shepherd using such corrective measures? It's for the benefit of the sheep. That in that moment when the sheep is getting dragged by his neck in the crook of a shepherd's staff, though it probably doesn't feel that great, it is for the sheep's benefit. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, it's interesting, in doing some research, I had never heard this, and I will admit I'm not an expert on what shepherding looked like in uh, the ancient Near, Near East, but apparently there's some evidence that when uh, it came time for feeding or they really needed to focus, that sometimes a shepherd would even uh, get like a little elevated platform or find a little elevated spot and lead the sheep to that. Um, and that some people think that's the sort of imagery uh, David is using here in this psalm. And that may be true, um, but there's also just the simple reality of what's it mean that a table has been prepared for you. One, you're wanted. That you are not an unwanted or uninvited guest. In those days, to share a meal with someone was to uh, welcome them as family. 
And that continued in through uh, the first century. That's why in the parable of the prodigal son, when that older son refuses to come and eat, he is essentially disowning his father in the same way that the younger son did and would be considered just as guilty. Because eating, having, sitting at a table, breaking bread with one another was a big deal. That's why one of the chief complaints about Jesus was, this man, he eats with sinners. And sometimes we forget that because we think about, you know, when's the last time you ate with a sinner? And uh, I won't ask you to say breakfast, but for most of us, right, the answer is breakfast. Um, yet, in those days, that was a big deal to share a meal with someone. And that's something we've sort of lost in our, our culture. But the key is that you're not only welcomed like family, but you are expected, that you are provided for. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Uh, it reminds, immediately, my mind went to not only are we anointed as God's own children through the water and word of baptism, but you think of David's life, that he was literally anointed with oil from God. Uh, that's in 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, if you want at some point to uh, take a look at that. I didn't want to read through the whole account now, just uh, for the sake of time. But in 1 Samuel 16, that's where Samuel goes, and he literally anoints David's head with oil. And perhaps this is David's own reminder to himself that God has called me his own, that God has cho chosen me, that he has anointed me. And we often need reminding of that, that God through Christ Jesus in our faith, in the water and the word of holy baptism, he has chosen us. One of my favorite hymns is God's own child. I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ, that God has called you his own. And then verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, for I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And again, we think back to a, a flock of sheep, and in today's culture, what's usually following a flock of sheep? It's not the shepherd, but usually some sort of shepherd dog, right? An Australian shepherd or a cattle dog of some kind or some sort of dog that is designed to do this. And not to make too much out of a modern situation, but if you kind of ever seen that happen and the way the dog is prancing back and forth, keeping everything nice and tight and circled, and if you think of goodness and mercy, being like that in our own lives, that not only is it goodness, not only does God's goodness, uh, does it follow us, but his mercy, his undeserved favor, his grace and his mercy, his goodness, follow us all the days of our lives. So next time you see, I don't know, something on National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, or channel of a, a, a little... Australian shepherd or a German shepherd rounding up a bunch of sheep. Oh, it's goodness and mercy, right? So, I mean, this psalm is so well-known and it is used rightfully so uh, at, often at, in funeral uh, situations. But it's also a good reminder that when we have a well-known passage or a well-known section of Scripture, um, there's such a wealth of great information still there. Don't just gloss over it because you know the psalm. 
It's like John 3.16. Sometimes we say that and we just kind of gloss over it. Yeah, 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 for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. It's like, no, think of what that means. Think of what Psalm 23 means for us, just as it meant for David, that we know that the Lord is our shepherd. In fact, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. It's like he was spelling it out for him, right? (laughs) I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And again, I was not raised uh, near farm animals all that much, but uh, I was reminded one time at the seminary that uh, sheep are not known for being particularly smart animals. (laughs) So lest we think too highly of ourselves and being sheep, right? This is also uh, a great reminder in humility because if a sheep goes out on his own, a sheep does not survive. If the sheep branches out from the shepherd, it does not get very far before not only would its whole world, all the provision, all the protection, all the security go away, but often his own life. So I'll open it up for questions now with Psalm 23. I'm hoping that's a good sign that there's no questions thus far. Yes, David. So some of the Psalms in the inscription have a specific moment. It will say, you know, when this happened here, uh, this one does not. Now, we can probably infer a couple moments in David's life where he needed reminder of this. Um, Whether it was when he was persecuted uh, by Saul, whether it was when his own son came after him. Um, Now, we don't know the exact moment. But, you know, you can kind of use some general inference to think, okay, this may have been a time David needed reminding of this. Um, But there's also, I think a blessing in the ambiguity as well, because it's a reminder that this is for every day. That it's not just for when things are bad. That it's not just for when times uh, of trouble come upon us or we feel like we're walking in the valley of the shadow of death and we need reminder. No, every day we have that same gift, that same comfort, that same promise. Those three words from Philippians, right? Joy, peace, and strength. And so... Um, in some ways, I think the ambiguity is kind of nice because it reminds us that it, it can work every day. But the reality is it probably was written in a time of David's life where there was um, turmoil, struggle, uh, probably even the prospect of death, and it was on his mind uh, quite a bit. But that's a great question. All right. Well, then we'll move on. Um, Let's make sure we'll get to the gospel lesson because this is a parable that it can sometimes be a little, excuse me, confusing. And I want to make sure that we cover it since it's in the lectionary uh, for this upcoming Sunday. And because of everything going on, as you guys know, our services are shortened just a little bit. So we're not able to get every single reading in each week so that we can uh, continue to have enough services uh, to accommodate those signing up, which is a great blessing to have. But I certainly look forward to that day when we can cover Um, every single lesson on a Sunday, or we can read them uh, in the service or uh, say them responsibly in the case of a psalm on a Sunday. But the gospel lesson is Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, and it's the parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the gospel of the Lord, right? This can be one of those parables. This isn't the first one we line up and <laughs> say, oh yeah, that's my favorite parable of Jesus. No, we usually like the lost coin or the uh, prodigal son or the, the workers in the vineyard. This one somehow manages to skip uh, usually the top three or four favorite parables that we end up uh, having. Um, and it is challenging because it not only presents our issues, uh, presents issues regarding the place of what God does um, and what our own works do in the, our lives. Um, but we have to remember what the parable is talking about. What does it start with? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like this. So in verses 3 uh, through 10, you have those who uh, ought to know better than to, to reject the wedding feast. You have those who had the invite and said, no, I'm, I'm not interested. And not only am I not interested, uh, those who you sent to tell me the invite, we're going to seize them, even in some cases, kill them. They ignored not only God's word, but ultimately, as we read uh, in, in the Gospels, these people ignored who Jesus was. And they not only rejected the invite that was for them as God's people, but ultimately they killed him. And then you get to the second part of the text, that the invitation of the king is extended to anyone those who the king sends out to invite could find. It's not special people. It's not select. It's not the creme de la creme of society. It's for any and all that those ones charged with inviting to the feast can find. Those who may of their own rights or their own social standing or their own actions have no business being at a wedding feast, let alone one thrown by a king. And so... Now, as in response to the rejection of the first invitations, the king invites all unworthy, previously uninvited, 
to his kingdom. And so you wonder, what does this tell us about worthiness? Because they're still able to come to the wedding feast. Under whose authority were they able to come? Not their own. They didn't deserve it. Like I said, they were not special. This was not the creme de la creme. No, the king determined their worthiness. That the king's word is the thing that made them worthy to attend. That not if they were good or bad people, not if they were rich or poor, not if they were well-spoken or maybe weren't even able to read. No, the king's invitation is what carries the weight. The king's invitation is what has the authority. But then we get to the part that I think for most of us is the most difficult to understand, myself included. It's kind of a strange uh, ending to a parable because of these unworthy invited, uh, he sees one with no wedding garment and he asks him, how did you get in here? And he can't respond. So he binds him hand and foot and casts him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's been lots of speculation about what it, mean, what it meant that he did not have a wedding garment. Uh, one of the speculations many commentators have, this means he snuck in, that he didn't have an invitation, and either he lied or, uh, without invitation, tried to come to the feast. But there's also the other possibility, which is um, those who were invited most likely none of them had wedding garments. Yet, why is this one the one without a wedding garment? Or to put it another way, who provided those who previously did not have a wedding garment with a wedding garment? The king. And so when this one shows up with only his own worth, when he doesn't put on the garment of the king, when he shows up with only his uh, abilities, his own actions, his own worth, to present himself that is deemed insufficient for what is required. And I think that puts this parable, a parable that can seem rather strange, uh, in, in a very appropriate context. That so often we try to make it about what we have, what we present ourselves being. But who are we dependent on? We're dependent on the king, on the king of kings, we're dependent on Christ to clothe us in his righteousness. That we have no uh, ability of our own doing to stand there and pretend we are worthy to be in the kingdom of heaven. That we, of our own doing, uh, are speechless. I kind of actually enjoy the fact that he has nothing to say. There, there's nothing he can add. There's no defense. And yet... It is the king who clothes us in his righteousness. And so when we allow ourselves to receive what the king freely gives to us, we're welcome to the feast. And again, as a reminder, whenever it's in the start, it's important to remember the context that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. That 
This is what heaven is like. It is not our own merit. In fact, if we try to get up there with our own merit, we're going to be speechless. That if it's of our own doing, we don't stand a chance. But that's not what we rely on. Rather, it's God and it's Christ Jesus, our Lord, that calls us to his kingdom, that calls us to the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which will have no end. All right, so that is the gospel lesson. I know that had to be kind of quick, but we've got about five minutes left because uh, I'm going to ask you, remind you to wipe down your chairs after we end. So we're going to end about five minutes early so we can have that time before Living Stone begins. But our Old Testament reading, I will briefly go over it, is uh, Isaiah chapter 25, uh, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So just to cover a few things briefly, in verse 6, we open up with, on this mountain, of course, then the question becomes, anytime we start with something uh, like this is, well, what's the this mountain? What mountain? Uh, and immediately, especially in Isaiah, we can start to think of an eschatological and a, a uh, end times uh, setting. In fact, I was reminded instantly of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, where uh, it will come to pass that all people shall go up to the mountain of the Lord, and that mountain shall be the highest of all mountains. And that little section of Isaiah 2 concludes with, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so you kind of have some similarities immediately with what's happening here in Isaiah 25. But again, we have the feast imagery, which you can see why this is then included, especially with our gospel reading uh, from Matthew, where you're at a feast that has rich food, well-aged wine, wine that is well-refined and rich food full of marrow, that this is a feast of the highest quality, that this is the good stuff. This is the feast that will not be surpassed. Verse 7 we read, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. It's interesting, that word there, uh, that covering, means to literally be wrapped around, both in a binding sense but in a, a surrounding sense. Uh, that envelops all peoples. So we're thinking, okay, so what sort of covering (laughs) covers all peoples that the Lord uh, will need to swallow up? And hopefully most of us immediately go to, well, that, that slavery to sin, that just like Paul says in Romans 6, that we were slaves to sin, that all men have sinned, that this is a stain that all people carry, and yet God himself swallows it up. 
And it's kind of confirmed in verse 8 because we read, he will swallow up death forever. And so if you want to say the covering is death, that's, un, that's justifiable as well because what are the wages of sin? Death. So again, we get back right to the same idea that this is sin, death, and the devil that God is destroying. And that the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, and what a beautiful picture this last verse is, that all nations come together and would say, all people, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Immediately, this is probably because I went to uh, a Lutheran grade school, I thought of the song, uh, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, right? And how often I've wanted to sing that in the last six months, and the answer is not all that often, right? Yet, this is still the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it, in the salvation that the Lord has made known to us. So that concludes, sorry, the gospel and the uh, Old Testament lesson had to be a little shorter today. But that concludes our Bible study today, so we have enough time to wipe down uh, where we are seated. I will open it up for questions for like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, if anyone has a quick question. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, what an excellent reminder your word is to us in all situations. But especially today, as we face lots of uncertainty, Lots of troubling times, lots of things we could potentially be worried or anxious about. Uh, What a wonderful gift your word is in reminding us of those three words that, that you give to us, the things you bestow on us, that you give to us joy, peace, and strength. Joy in the midst of what can be a very sorrowful, tough time for many. Strength when many people may even feel like giving up but ultimately is that peace that comes from you, Lord, the peace of Christ which surpasses all understanding that I pray would guard the hearts and the minds of all people, that we would continue to serve you in all things, and it is all to the glory of your Son's holy name. And it is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you guys. It was a nice uh, milestone, our first in-person Bible study in quite some time. It was great to have you guys with us, and thank you to everyone listening on KFUL.